If you got a Bible, find Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Let me set up what we're going to talk about today. In Acts chapter 9, something crazy is going to happen. At the beginning of Acts 9, we're going to see a terrorist who's persecuting Christians. And at the end of Acts 9, that terrorist who persecuted Christians is going to be a persecuted Christian. Right? His name is Saul. You, you might know him as Paul. He has both names in the New Testament. And this guy named Saul or Paul is actually going to be one of the most fruitful and powerful missionaries in the history of the church. And what happens in this transition or in this transformation from him being a terrorist who persecutes Christians to a persecuted Christian, we actually are invited into not just an extraordinary story that God did in history that has nothing to do with us, but we're actually invited into the heart of God's grace for sinners. We're actually reminded about what it is to be a Christian, which is not to be a person that's figured out all the answers or who's a better person than the other folks in our city. What it is to be a Christian is to be somebody that was arrested and apprehended by grace. And so in the story of Paul, we have in some sense our stories, even though his story is exceptional, in the exceptional dramatic beauty of his story, we're actually given a snapshot or a sketch of the story of all Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's to be rescued by grace. And there've been a lot of people that have tried to explain his story throughout history. And they've been a lot of different theories about what it was that moved him from terrorist persecuting Christians to persecuted Christian. And some of the most interesting of those theories are, are these. Um, one theory was that he was brainwashed So he had some sort of trauma in his life and uh, this group of Christians got around him and through psychological techniques, they basically talked him into being a Christian. They basically reworked the neurosynapses of his brain. It was sort of a Pavlov's dog experiment. And on the other side, you have the Apostle Paul. Um, Another theory is that he had an hallucination on the road to Damascus. And not a lot of people explain what the hallucination came from, but maybe he got a hold of some bad mushrooms and he's on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden things go Pink Floyd the wall and he has this vision that's not really a vision, it's just in his head and that leads to him being this guy that becomes a Christian. Uh, One of the most popular theories is that it was money and the desire for fame that drove this. Now, I'll just say, if that's your perspective, if that's what you think happened to Paul, any of those three things, or a different theory, I just say, like, first of all, I've got a lot of charity for those views just because I know the cynicism of my own heart. And I know that I'm pretty good at being a guy that comes up with ways to discount the supernatural. Um, I, I tend to be a guy that wrestles with doubt. I tend to be a bit cynical. I tend to be a skeptic. But here's the problem with all those theories. The problem is, We have Paul's letters that talk about his encounter with Jesus, and we actually have the history of the early church that shows that whatever it was that happened to him on the road to Damascus was so deep, it was so penetrating, that he actually did become a different guy. Uh, In fact, in one of the letters that he wrote to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth, he talks about the amount of suffering that he endured as an apostle. I just want to read this excerpt to you. This is from 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Um, He's describing being beaten with a cat of nine tails on his back. He had that happen to him five times and five different times he got struck 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So I think when you look at what this guy endured as an apostle of Jesus, when you look at the track record of his suffering, when you look at all the things that he went through, and when you read his letters that he wrote to Christians, and you find the golden thread in all of his his letters, which is basically this, like, it's all worth it to have Jesus. You have to go back and you have to look at his account of what happened to him at his conversion and you actually have to lend it some credence and some weight because his account of what happened to him was actually the catalyst that led towards a life of incredible and immense suffering in which no matter how bad it got, he kept saying again and again and again, it's worth it because now I have Jesus. So with that in mind, Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at his state before he met Jesus, we're going to look at Jesus' intervention, and then we're going to look at what happens after the intervention. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus in Syria, So that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the early name for Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, here's what's happening. This guy named Saul is a Pharisee that's been trained in the law. And he so hates the message and ministry of Jesus that he's described by Luke, the historian that wrote the gospel of Acts in ways that actually correspond to like a... a, raving mad animal that's devouring people. In Acts chapter six and seven, he actually stands there while a guy named Stephen has his brains bashed in and he gives hearty approval to the murder. And then in Acts chapter eight, the scripture says that he ravaged the church. And the language in the Greek is like the language that would be used to describe like a wild boar in a vineyard destroying the vineyard or like a a bear mauling a person in the wilderness. And then in Acts chapter 9, he's described as breathing out threats and seeking injunctions against Christians that would allow him to arrest both men and women, to break up families, and to bring people in chains all the way to Jerusalem to throw them in jail. And later on in Acts chapter 9, another Christian is going to describe what he did as causing havoc in Jerusalem. Now, here's why this matters. When you look at the historical background and you look at this guy's track record and you look at his state of mind and state of heart based on observable, verifiable facts about the way he's treating Christians, what you come to the realization of is that this is a guy that wasn't looking for Jesus. This is not a guy that's like hungry for Jesus, that wants to know Jesus. This is not a guy that's a quote-unquote seeker. 
right? He, he's not exploring the claims of Jesus. This is a guy that for whatever reason, his religious fanaticism has driven him to not only hate Jesus, but to hate anybody that calls upon the name of Jesus. He is hostile to the gospel. He's hostile to the church. And in some ways, his rage is dehumanizing him. He's like a wild animal. He's like a a murderous beast. He wants to persecute. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. And in that state of mind, not bringing anything to the table of his salvation, but murderous rage, Jesus meets him. Now, I just want to pause here for just a second because in a lot of ways, that may seem like a just, just an exceptional story. And, and it, it, is, it is exceptional. There's only one Apostle Paul, right? Like this guy's story is amazing. His conversion is amazing. His background is amazing. But here's what I want you to see. The Bible is really clear that there aren't people that seek and find God, that all of us have gone astray and no one seeks after God. The Bible says that the state of our hearts without Jesus, though we're human beings in the image of God with value, dignity, and worth, the state of our souls, right? The state of our heart before God is what Paul calls in Romans dead. It's hard to God. It's far from God. And and the reality is this picture of Saul in the extreme of his raving against Jesus and raving against the gospel, it may be extreme, but it's also a parable or picture of just the way the human heart is not looking for God in Christ and something crazy has to happen to get our hearts to see Jesus. See, Saul doesn't bring to the table of his conversion a bunch of good deeds. Like he doesn't contribute 5% of the work of his salvation so that Jesus can then contribute 95%. Here's what you see in the life of Saul. The only thing he brought to the table was a whole lot of evil. He brought a whole lot of sin. He brought a whole lot of devastation. He brought a lot of things that he had done that were really wicked. He brought a heart that was really far from God. And here's what I want you to see. Hearts can be far from God in the way that his heart was far from God through religion. See, it was his religious fanaticism and his pride and arrogance that led him to believe that he was better than anybody and he could boast before God and he could claim external obedience to the law to such a degree that he thought he had the right to judge Christians and persecute Christians. So you can be far from God and be religious or you can be far from God and be irreligious. You can say you don't want anything to do with religion and you just want to live a life of pleasure or live a life based on your own rules and your own values. But the common denominator for all human beings is that though we're loved by God and though every single human being is an image bearer of God, no matter how intelligent or unintelligent, how educated or uneducated, all human beings have value, dignity, and worth as image bearers of God. Though those things are completely true and glorious, Every human being is born in a state of spiritual death known as sin. And this guy saw, man, he brings nothing good to the table. This is not the story of Jesus looking down and seeing Saul's raving against the church and realizing, but, you know, there's two or three good things he's really doing that mean that we want to have him on our team because of how great those two or three things are. Actually, the totality of his heart is off and the totality of his actions are off. And even the things that he's doing that he thinks are good deeds are actually so twisted up with wickedness and pride that there's nothing he brings except evil to the table. Now, with that in mind, look at what happens in verse three. 
Now, as he went on his way, and and can I just say, this is the story of every conversion, this part. As we go on our way, not knowing God, not loving Jesus, being driven by either religious sin, in which we're prideful and arrogant, or irreligious sin, in which we're prideful and arrogant in a different way. He was going on his way as he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Okay, this is a snapshot of the scandal of grace. If you're wondering what grace is, grace is not just a theological construct, right? Like it it is a theological construct. It's not just that. Grace is not just a definition in a dusty encyclopedia of religious terms. Here's what grace is. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, or to put it another way, grace is the relational experience of God's love in Jesus. Or to put it another way, grace is not getting what we deserve, it's getting what Jesus deserves. So what happens in this text is nuts. Instead of Jesus wiping this guy out, instead of Jesus giving him what he deserves, here's what you see. First of all, Jesus initiates a relationship with him. Jesus draws near to him. Jesus comes to him and he comes to him in mercy and he comes to him in grace. In addition, here's what you see. Though Jesus knocks him off of his donkey, I would like to phrase that in a more colorful way, but Jesus knocks him off of his donkey, like literally and metaphorically, puts him on the ground. Jesus puts him on the ground, but here's what's fascinating. Jesus doesn't knock him into the dirt to crush him. He knocks him into the dirt to humble him so that he can lift him up to something beautiful. Jesus initiates the relationship. Jesus humbles him in the relationship. And here's what you see. Jesus actually doesn't brainwash him or turn him into a robot. Jesus doesn't wipe away Saul's brain. Jesus reveals who he is, who Jesus is. And in the light of who Jesus is, what starts to happen for Saul is he actually starts to know who he is and what he needs. This is what conversion is. Conversion is not coming to a place where you've figured out all the answers and objections to Christianity and you've intellectually worked through all those things and now you're ready on your own to make a decision. Like that may be a part of what God uses in conversion, but conversion is this wonderful thing in which either through the course of a long time or like Saul, suddenly what happens is the light of Jesus shows up and you see who Jesus is and you see what he did on the cross for you and you see just how beautiful and glorious and holy Jesus is. You see his death and his resurrection and what his death and resurrection was meant to do. And here's what happens when the light of Jesus shows up and you see him, simultaneously you see yourself like you've never seen yourself. See, I I guarantee you that this guy Saul, who was a Pharisee, he would have prayed long prayers about how awesome he is all the time. He, He would have told you that he was one of the most righteous guys around, and in his righteousness and zeal for God, he was persecuting Christians. He would have looked you in the eye and said, hey, let me tell you what you need to do to be more like me so that you could be more pleasing to God. 
But all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And when he sees Jesus, the light of who Jesus is also illuminates the darkness of who he is. And he realizes, oh man, like actually, I can't trust in myself anymore. I need rescue. I need help. I need deliverance. In fact, a great metaphor for what he experiences is verse 18. This is something physical that happens. Um, The light of Jesus is so bright that something messes up Saul's eyes. And in verse 18, he gets prayed for by a guy named Ananias. And here's what it says. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. That's a great metaphor for what it is to become a Christian. The scales drop off of his eyes so he can see. Here's what it is to be converted. It's it's to see Jesus. It's to see that he's the son of God and he came because human beings could not get to the father. He came to pursue us in love. He came to pay the price for our sins. And in history, he rose from the dead to triumph over sin and Satan and death. And he offers us mercy and grace, not because we deserve it, but because he's good. Right? And what happens is in the light of Jesus, we start to see ourselves and the scales fall off. And where there was shame that kept us away from God, we feel an invitation to his love. And where there was pride that kept us away from God, we feel an invitation to his love. And all of a sudden, his grace takes hold and something really beautiful happens. Now, what is it that happens? So if that's where Saul was, he was dead to God and hostile and breathing out threats. He wasn't contributing anything to his salvation except messed up junk. And if that's what Jesus does, that he initiates and he pursues and he humbles him to lift him up and he opens the eyes of his heart so he can see Jesus, here's the result of all that grace. Three things happen that are beautiful. Three things happen to Saul and three things happen to any Christian who meets Jesus. The first thing that happens that's really glorious is that he's reconciled to God. He's reconciled to God. Skip over to verse nine. So he has this encounter with Jesus. He goes to Damascus and he actually stays at this place called the street called straight, which is really awesome. That's actually still in the city of Damascus in Syria. You can look that up on your computer this afternoon and you can see the straight street in Damascus, which was where Paul had this encounter with Ananias. And here's what happens. For three days, verse nine, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now we gotta stop here for a second because you you might read that and think, well, of course he's praying. That's what Pharisees do. In fact, Pharisees prayed and Pharisees fasted all the time. And what Saul is doing here is he's praying and he's fasting. It wouldn't have been the first time that he prayed and fasted, but here's what I want you to dig into. After he meets Jesus, there's a shift in the kind of praying he does where actually for the first time in his life, he's coming near to God in a way where communion and fellowship is happening, not blasphemous, evil, religious boasting. Here's what I mean. Jesus, in Luke chapter 18, tells a parable. Let me tell it to you. He writes this, Luke records this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So pause here for a second. What is it to be religious in a bad sense? Okay, what is it to be religious in a bad sense? 
It's to trust in yourself. Okay, so what's at the very heart of dead religion? It's trusting in yourself. Now, here's what Jesus says. He's telling this parable so that those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt would see this. Verse 10, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. And we know from his own testimony and from his letters and from the history of the early church that he was a Pharisee that took being a Pharisee really seriously. Now, Pharisees were the religious elite. These were guys that could memorize entire chapters of the Old Testament. These were guys that are always tithing. These are guys that went to the temple and they prayed big prayers and they were always fasting and praying. A tax collector is not just a person that is hated in Israel because they take more taxes than what they should take right? We, we've probably heard that multiple times in sermons. Like tax collectors were bad because if you owed $50, they would have taken $55. Now it's true that if you owed $50, they would have taken $55. But get this, a tax collector was actually the most hated person in all of Israel because what a tax collector did is he actually extorted money from his own oppressed people so that he could give that money to the Roman occupying army to oppress his people. So this guy was hated. This guy was considered the lowest of the low. And this Pharisee was considered the elite varsity righteous guy of the city. And they go up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, this is so crazy. Paul would have spent his whole life praying and fasting, but something happens after he meets Jesus that radically shifts the way he prays and fasts. And here's what happens. In the light of God's holiness in Christ, he sees that his best efforts at being better than other people and keeping the law have fallen so short of the heart of who God is that the only hope he has is to beat his breast and say, I need righteousness that I can't produce in myself. And he trusts in Jesus. And the story of being a Christian is real simple. It's this, it's an exchange that happens. Jesus's life was lived in perfect obedience to the father Jesus' death is not a death he deserved, it's a death we deserved. And on the cross, every bit of crime that we've committed against God and each other was put on Jesus. Now, when we trust in Jesus, here's what the Bible teaches happens. It's the miracle and scandal of grace. What happens is, through believing in Jesus, Jesus' track record of perfect righteousness, obedience, and goodness is credited to your account. And every bit of deficit in your account, all the things that you owe God that you can't pay and all the things you've owed your neighbors and haven't paid and all of the sins that you've committed get counted as Jesus's. And in that exchange, the unrighteous is made righteous, not because of our good deeds, but because of Jesus and his finished work. So here's what happens, man. Through the work of Jesus, 
Saul gets reconciled to the father and for the first time in his life, instead of standing like a Pharisee, boasting in the way he kept the law and pointing out the people that didn't keep the law, he now is coming near, not based on his own track record, but he's boasting in the finished work of Jesus. He's covered by Christ and he's coming to the Father to pray. Like, this is the heart of what it is to be a Christian. It's not that you have everything figured out. It's not that you're perfect. It's not a comparison game. To be a Christian is to be somebody that gets to come to the holy God that created everything out of nothing that the Bible describes as father and be adopted and received by him because you're coming to him through Jesus. Now, for the first time in Saul's life, he's praying and fasting. And for the first time in his life, he's actually being heard because he's praying through Jesus. Now, this is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Like, to pray in the name of Jesus is not you pray a prayer and you just ask whatever you want and then you tag on, and in the name of Jesus, right? Like, I need a brand new flat screen in the name of Jesus. It's not an incantation. To pray in the name of Jesus is realizing that your hope and your righteousness and your future and your security and your ability to come to the Father is all tied up in who Jesus is. And now you've been unified with Jesus by an act of God's mercy and everything he is, is for you. That's praying in the name of Jesus. So what happens to Saul? Well, he's reconciled to God, but he's also reconciled to the church. It's not just him and the father through Jesus. It's also him and brothers. Look at verse 13. Now, remember, Saul has a reputation, right? This guy is causing havoc in the world. He's persecuting Christians. He is a really dangerous person. And Ananias answers God and he says this, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Jesus says to Ananias, hey, go. There's this guy named Saul. I want you to pray for him. And Ananias is like, "Um, there's some information that you might not have available to you, right? Like, let me me fill you in. You might be missing a few of the facts. Like, I don't want to be the first one to line up to get put in handcuffs and drugged to Jerusalem. Here's what the Lord says. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Now here's where it gets really beautiful. Here's this man, Ananias, that has lived in fear of this man named Saul. But now this man named Saul has been reconciled to the father through Jesus. And here's what's going to happen. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is crazy. The first contact that Saul has with a Christian that's not a contact driven by Saul's violence is him laying helpless in a bed blind and a Christian comes in and here's what he does. He puts his hand on him. The laying on of hands is not just the weird stuff you've seen in movies or on TBN where a person pushes somebody over. Laying on of hands is powerful, but it's powerful in the sense of it being a a symbol of the fellowship and communion and brotherhood and sisterhood we have as Christians. So he lays his hands on him. That's a sign of love and community and care. And he opens his mouth and instead of saying, hey, you, 
you have killed my relatives. You've hurt my countrymen. You have abused my fellow disciples. He opens his mouth, and because of the finished work of Jesus, here's what comes out. Brother. See, are you feeling at all like the scandal of grace? The scandal of grace is he brought nothing to the table. Jesus pursued him and made him right with God. And Jesus pursued him and not only made him right with God, but he made him a brother and a sibling of the church, the very church he was trying to kill. In a minute, he's going to go to different cities and he's going to preach the gospel and be received. And he's about to meet Barnabas and they're going to be friends. And he's going to fellowship with Christians at Jerusalem. And the big idea is this, there's never reconciliation on the horizontal plane or excuse me, on the vertical plane, without there also being reconciliation on the horizontal plane. Like, the scandal of God's grace is that Jesus does something that makes it possible for you to be friends with Father God, and not just friends with Father God, for him to delight in you so fully that instead of counting all your trespasses, he declares you righteous because of Jesus' work, and he delights in you and lavishes his love on you. And then at the very same time, it's not just this personal relationship with him. It's this horizontal family relationship where he gives you siblings, brothers and sisters, and he adds you to the family of the church. He's reconciled to the father. He's reconciled to the church. And I just would say this, like, here's the reality. There's a lot of us in here right now that have trusted in Jesus that don't feel the assurance and the joy of being reconciled to the father. You're not feeling it right now. And what I would say to you is what starts to happen subtly over time is we forget the scandal of grace and we start to believe the lie that really for Paul to be received, he had to perform in a certain way to make himself worthy of God's grace. And we might not say it out loud theologically, like we know that it's all grace, but what we start to believe internally is sure, maybe I was saved by grace, but it's actually my works that keep me in right standing with God. It's my effort. It's my ability to grow or my ability to do good deeds or my ability to say no to sin. And what starts to happen is what started as a work of grace then becomes a work of law and we move from grace into fear. And instead of drawing near to the Father and receiving love and mercy and care, the heart that we have crying out, you're mine and I'm yours, what starts to happen is we become shy and reclusive and withdrawn from God and withdrawn from each other. I would just say to you, like, yes, there's a measure of effort in the Christian life. We see that in Paul's life. Yes, we're to war against sin. Yes, we're to take it seriously. But the way that all of that effort and all of that warring against sin is created is by coming back to again and again and again the scandal of grace. Because it's actually the finished work of Jesus in which you stand and God's not waiting for a future version of you for him to love you today. He actually loves you completely and totally today. You are so secure and safe in his love right now that you can breathe. It's not your performance that drives this relationship. It's Jesus. And therefore you can come back and repent and receive. And because it's not your performance that drives the relationship, you actually can engage with brothers and sisters and take off the mask of religion and comparison and we can love each other. So what happens to Saul? Well, he's reconciled to the father through the work of Jesus. He's reconciled to the church through the work of Jesus. And then he's also, lastly, he's reconciled for the work of God. So 
this is always what grace does. It reconciles us to the Father, it reconciles us to each other, and it also reconciles us back into the purpose of God or the mission of God. Let's end with this. Look at verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, is not this man the one who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And, he is, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and they led him through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles and declared to them how, much, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed with the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the story of Saul. He's reconciled to the father by the scandal of the finished work of Jesus being enough for him. He's reconciled to brothers and sisters by the scandal of God's grace being enough for him. And that grace is what leads him out into mission to contribute to the work of God. Now, let me say a couple of things. True, this is an exceptional conversion story, right? Like, there's not a lot of people in our church that your story is you were on your way to kill Christians and Jesus physically showed, showed up and knocked you on the ground and blinded your eyes. Like, that hadn't happened to a lot of us. Now, I don't want to be cynical because I've heard many stories, especially in the Islamic world, of people that were Muslims that Jesus appeared to in dreams and visions and became Christian. So I don't want to say Jesus can't do that. Jesus can do whatever he wants. But the average story for most of us is not that dramatic a conversion, nor are most of us as exceptionally gifted as the Apostle Paul, right? Like, you've, you've probably done some pretty cool stuff if you're a Christian for the glory of God, but like, you haven't written the book of Romans, okay? Can we just, like, I mean, he wrote Romans, like, I mean, I sometimes help my neighbors occasionally. He wrote Romans, <laughs> wrote Romans, um, he, he was exceptionally gifted. He had an exceptional conversion. He had an exceptional calling, right? Like Paul is going to be described as the apostle to the Gentile world. So essentially at this point, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Like, that's a big job description, big job description. So you may not have had that exceptional a conversion, that exceptional a calling. You may not have that exceptional um, amount of giftedness inside of you, but here's what's crazy, and you cannot forget this. There is nothing ordinary about grace ever. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, the scandal of grace is just as scandalous for you as it was him. And what's true of him is also true for you 
that you brought nothing to the table and therefore you can rest when you blow it realizing that it wasn't your good deeds that brought you into this, it was Jesus. And you can war against sin and grow not based on a performance-driven anxiety but based on a continual enjoyment of the fact that you've been reconciled to God, he's yours and you're his. And you got brothers and sisters, you're not alone, you don't have to fake it. And there's a mission that God's called you to that you get to participate in even if the way that you participate is not quite as dramatic as being the apostle to the Gentile world. But you still get to play. God's put you in a place and he's given you gifts. There are no Christians without grace conversions. There are no Christians without grace gifts. There are no Christians without grace callings. And there are no Christians who've experienced just a little bit of ordinary grace. Grace is always crazy, it's always miraculous, it's always amazing, it's always mind-blowing. It's just that we don't always admit it. 